0: Our scripture passage for this morning is from the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, You have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went at once away into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little more than 20 years ago, my husband Keith and I moved from College Station, Texas, to Atlanta, Georgia. We moved to Atlanta for me to go to seminary, so we moved close to campus. We moved into an apartment that was very close to campus. But we moved several months before classes started because Keith had a good job. Now, this job happened to be all the way across town. And he had quite a commute, so he would leave pretty early in the morning, and then he would return later in the evening. This was my first view of a big city, and the local news kept me in my place, afraid of my neighbors. I did try to pass the time doing things that I enjoyed which, because we didn't have much money and all my friends and family were back in Texas, amounted to unpacking a few boxes, watching TV, listening to the radio. And I found that I spent several months feeling very lonely. If I could just travel back in time 21 years ago, I would use the opportunity to give myself some advice. And this is what I would tell me. First of all, I would tell me this time alone is not a punishment. My favorite consequence to use as a parent, especially when my children were younger, is the consequence of time out. Throwing a fit, hitting your brother or sister, not being obedient, all of these were grounds for time out. And even though we called it a consequence, it was in fact a punishment. Because if you go to timeout, you are no longer fit for hanging out with the family. You must go and be away from us. But at least one of my children, when she was younger, would look at me with gratitude when I put her in timeout. (laughs) And she had this look that said, finally, I can get away from you people and enjoy myself. (laughs) The right perspective on solitude, I believe, belongs somewhere in the middle. It's somewhere in the middle of isolation and community. Richard Foster divides the disciplines of the faith into two categories, the outward disciplines and the inward disciplines. Solitude is, and I would not have guessed this, an outward discipline. Meditation is an inward discipline. But solitude is an outward discipline. And I think what Foster is getting at here is that being alone with our thoughts in the presence of the Holy Spirit is always preparation for relating to other people in very healthy and helpful ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Let those who cannot be alone beware of community. And let those who cannot be in community beware of being alone. Because each practice by itself has its own pitfalls. If we are going to be in relationship with other people in meaningful ways, we must experience the way stillness can recreate us. Which leads me to the second thing that I would tell myself. I would tell myself to turn off the TV. And if I were 25 years old today, I would say, shut down those screens. Shut down the Facebook or the Instagram or the Twitter. One can be alone looking at a screen, but this is not solitude. Mindless chatter has a way of igniting and fueling loneliness. This is why we can be in a big crowd and still feel very lonely, because mindless chatter that happens on the surface, leaves no place for depth, it leaves no place for connection, it's just noise. So in solitude, we do the best that we can to eliminate the chatter and eliminate the busyness. So intricately related are silence and solitude that many people use the words interchangeably to refer to the same practice. Because John Ortberg says that silence has a way of igniting and fueling mindfulness. And mindfulness is the ability to be fully present in the moment, aware of the moment, aware of ourselves, and thankful. That's mindfulness. George Bernard Shaw wrote a play called St. Joan. And one of the characters in the play asks Joan of Arc why the voice of God never speaks to him when the voice of God so often speaks to her. Joan of Arc replies, The voice speaks to you all the time. You just fail to listen. The third thing that I would tell myself is that you are not alone. Because solitude always takes place In the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is our companion in solitude. In this truth, loneliness and fear can be driven away. And the space that is created is then very safe place. It's a pleasant place and it can be a very insightful place. As I relinquish the control of that time over to the Holy Spirit, I don't have to be in charge. I remember another time in my life where I spent a considerable amount of time alone. Our family had just moved to a new town. We were in a new home. There was a new baby in the house. I had not yet started classes. Maybe I should say school because I was four years old. (laughs) Wherever my mother went, I went also. If we left the house, there were times when she would take me places I didn't want to go. One of those places was the fabric store. I hated the fabric store, but we would go to the fabric store. A lot of my time during the day was spent, though, in our new home with my mother just a call away in the other room. And that time was left to my discretion. I was cared for. I was fed. I was clothed. I was bathed. My mom was available if I needed her, but I was left alone to play. This is my template for solitude. It's safe. It's a place where we rely on provision. It's a place where we can go, places that we don't want to go, and we are cared for no matter what. We are going to have a few moments of silence together as a congregation, and so what I will do during this time of silence is simply notice my thoughts Notice my thoughts like they're attached to helium balloons. Would you, as we enter into this time of silence, receive these words of Scripture from the 16th Psalm? The psalmist wrote, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, Lord, hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Galatians, I believe, is my very favorite letter written by Paul in the New Testament. It's the tone of Galatians that gets me. From the very beginning, it is evident that someone is in trouble, and I'm just glad it's not me. I'm standing behind the teacher snickering. Paul skips over his usual, I thank my God every time I remember you because, and goes straight goes straight to, and I'm paraphrasing here, you knuckleheads in Galatia. The great offense of the churches in Galatia is that they are being persuaded by false teachers or agitators who are teaching that the practices of the Old Testament are binding for the New Testament church. They are teaching that there are requirements that the faithful need to meet. They are preaching against and they are living against Paul's teaching that he says is foundational for the faithful. God's grace is revealed to us in a new and powerful way in the Messiah. And so Paul's purpose in writing to the churches in Galatia has two parts. The first is that Paul is writing... To talk about the importance of the coming of the Messiah to the faithful. What does this mean to us? And the second thing that Paul is writing about is his own authority. Because those false teachers or agitators in Galatia have said that Paul is not the real deal. He's not an apostle. And so Paul writes to tell the people in Galatia about the authority that he's been given He's very clear that the gospel that he preaches is not of human origin. When Christ is revealed to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says he doesn't consult with any human being, but instead he goes to Arabia and then returns to Jerusalem three years later. Arabia is important, I think, first of all, because it is a way. It's away from the leaders of the church. It's away from the faithful people. It is a time set apart. It's a time of solitude. It's a time of preparation. In 2009, William Dershowitz addressed the entering class at West Point, and he told them that we have a shortage of leaders in the United States, and it's not because we can't answer questions but it's because we can't ask good questions it's not because we can't get things done but it's because we don't ask whether or not they are worth doing in the first place he told these young men and i assume some women also that the solution is not multitasking but it is instead slowing down concentrating thinking for yourself, and he used the word solitude. When we are faced with a crisis or a difficult time, a hard decision, if we have had times of solitude, we then know what we believe, and we know what our guiding principles are. Solitude, I think, is packing your spiritual bags. But there's one more thing about Arabia that I want you to consider with me. N.T. Wright, who is a Bible scholar and and teacher, says that there's a particular mountain in Arabia that would have come to mind to Paul and to the people in Galatians. That mountain is Mount Sinai. Now, you, of course, know that there's some disagreement about the exact location of Mount Sinai. We were not given the map coordinates coordinates in scripture. But right as he looks at the whole letter of Galatians, notice that in chapter 4, when Paul is talking about Hagar and her descendants, he references not Arabia, which is where the descendants of Hagar live, but he instead references Mount Sinai. He says that Hagar went to Mount Sinai. And so N.T. Wright then says that when Mount Sinai is mentioned, Arabia is alluded to. And then in chapter one, when Arabia is mentioned, Mount Sinai is alluded to. So when Paul says in chapter one that he went away to Arabia, the people in Galatia would hear, I bet he went to Mount Sinai. I bet he went to the source of it all, to the birthplace of the Mosaic Covenant. And here's what I think about the allusion to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where slaves go who are set free. That's why it would be important to Hagar. That's why it would be important to the people of Israel. It's why it would be important to Paul. He has been set free. And it's why he wants it to be important to the people in Galatia. He wants them to be set free. Where exactly is Mount Sinai located? Well, I would suggest to you that it would be easy to find Because it would be the mountain piled high with rusty old shackles and chains. It is, in fact, the place where the faithful go who have once been slaves that are now set free. So does Paul tell the people in Galatia to physically go to Mount Sinai? No, he doesn't. But I would tell you that he tells them to go there spiritually. He tells them to make a spiritual pilgrimage, to remember the God of the deliverance, and to live into their freedom. James Bryan Smith uses a metaphor to talk about faithful people, and it's a metaphor that I understand. It's dogs. He talks about country dogs and city dogs, and I have one of each in my house. This is what he says about the country dog. The country dog lives in wide-open spaces. The country dog has freedom to roam. The country dog dog can go down to the creek. He can wrestle a skunk. He can sleep in the sun. He can forage for food. But where is the country dog's favorite place? On the master's front porch. That's where you'll find the country dog. That's where he spends most of his time. The city dog, on the other hand... Spends her time cooped up and has one goal in mind. The city dog's goal is to escape. And so the moment that the door is open or there's a crack in the gate, the city dog makes a run for it. And then the master has to chase down the city dog and coerce the city dog or trap the city dog to bring them back to the master's home. The spiritual life is not a life of fences, it's not a life of laws and precepts, but it is instead a life of participation, it's a life of affection, it's a life of mingling our lives with God. Howard Thurman was a 20th century theologian, teacher, leader of the Civil Rights Movement, He wrote a prayer for himself that I would like to pray over you. Would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? My ego is like a fortress. I have built its walls stone by stone to hold out the invasion of the love of God. But I have stayed here long enough. There is light over the barriers, oh my God. The darkness of my house forgive and overtake my soul. I relax the barriers. I abandon all that I think I am, all that I hope to be, all that I believe I possess, and I let go of the past. I withdraw my grasping hand from the future. And in the great silence of this moment, I alertly rest my soul.